So there is a whole category of indirect evidence. And that's, that is a significant piece of the indirect evidence. Um, you're right. And indirect evidence can be quite weighty. Thank you. Back here in the back. That, that's an interesting question. What he asked was, how, how will this decision affect um, things like who inherits property, right? Um, and and I, think, I think it will. It, it, it clearly will. But I don't know if it's going to be too drastic in the sense, my, my, my impression is in the sense of um, what, you know, what has always been husband and wife is now being replaced by spouse. And so the spouse will inherit under, you know, if, if there is no will, for example, uh, then spouse will inherit, will inherit property where a month ago in many states they couldn't. All right, we're going to go right here, Josiah. Again, I'm not totally dodging the question. We don't know yet um, exactly how it will be. I, I expect that um, uh, religious freedom legislation, as well as the First Amendment, uh, which, quite frankly, our free exercise of religion has been eroded over the years with decisions like uh, the Smith uh, decision uh, back in the 90s or so, um, has hurt the free exercise uh Clause, but I, I believe it's going to be revived, and I think that um, churches and pastors will will be protected um, from prosecution and that sort of thing. I think that the other issues, such as Christians in business of places of accommod- public accommodation, for example, that's going to be a much more open question, um, particularly here in Virginia, because it's brand new in Virginia. Other states have had these sorts of laws for a while, and, and it's probably developed more there. But um, you know, the issue is if if it's going to be tr- treated exactly like issues of race, then those places will be in trouble. So, so, so a lot of the, a lot of the discussion in public has been comparing this issue with interracial marriage. And if, you, and if that's the framework of the discussion, then, Christian, then businesses who will discriminate, for lack of a better word, against same-sex couples will be in a lot of trouble. Um, I think, however, that the free exercise clause um, of the First Amendment and um, religious freedom laws will serve to protect and, and, cha- it, and change that discussion. And if I understand it right... All the law said is that a, a state cannot deny marriage. That's right. Now, the knock-on effects, we don't yet know, but that's all this. Secondly, as a pastor, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. I mean, I hope our church keeps 501c3 status because it's a benefit. But if we have to make a choice, it's a no-brainer. We go and turn our 501c3 status in, and we always choose God. So I'm not scared. Um, but I hope that there are people in the room who will work in our governments in ways that lead us there. So, Next question, right down front. And I'm making fun of us. Okay. That there's a deep middle class value at being understood. And this is challenging that idol. And I want to hold it up for how small it is. So that we can laugh at it, suck it up, and die on a cross of being misunderstood. So that, that, that was my issue. 
So my view is that the plausibility structure says it's okay to have gay sex. And no amount of words of mine is going to cause somebody to think that when I say, no, it's not okay, that I still love them. Now, I'll say I love them, but the plausibility structure deconstructs what I'm saying. I believe that fact means we should admit up front we will be misunderstood. Too many people are waiting to speak until they know the person loves them. That's what a lot of people have been saying. Don't talk about this to somebody unless they know you love them. And what I'm saying is the plausibility structure of our society deconstructs that from the get-go. The moment I say it's sin, I'm a bigot in the plausibility structure. Therefore, I think what we've got to begin to do is own that up front. Lead off with I love you. Know that as soon as I say the words, it's heard as hate speech. And then spend the next 50 years trying to convince them otherwise. I think we've been playing the wrong game. I think we've been trying to convince them we love them before we actually say what the Bible says. And I'm saying, I think that's cowardly. That's what I'm trying to get at. Thank you. Let's go right here. Well, I mean, it's, it's a question of history. Um, but, the, but governments have always been involved with marriage. Governments um, haven't have an interest in, particularly with regard to children, um, the family and uh, that basic, one of the basic building blocks, not, not more basic than the church, but one of the basic building, building blocks of society. And so um, the go- governments have always, uh, you know, to some extent or another, uh, been involved in that. And uh, certainly in our Anglo tradition, they have. This is actually, I think, at the key point. Government should be in the marriage business because we need our government to have something to say about children. And for the first time, we disconnected marriage from procreation. That was the change. Government involvement in marriage all the way back in the Bible. What the change is, is not that they got in the marriage business... It's that they disconnected marriage from procreation in the law. That's the critical mistake. That exposes children. You raise a very good issue because, quite frankly, the majority opinion and the four dissents are all very disappointing on that score. The, the opinions, the dissents, really focus on this was done the wrong way. It's not really about marriage. It's about the process. They say the, major, the, the Supreme Court's not in the business of finding new rights buried in the words due process. Um, the, the, the Supreme Court is essentially legislating. The five people in the Supreme Court are basically legislating their political views. Um, and, they, and they gripe and complain about that. And, and, and they make a good point. But it, it goes back to this whole argument about... Um, substitute due process and, and finding unenumerated rights. But that's really where their focus is. There's some mention about concern about um, uh, folks who, who object to homosexual marriage on, on 
religious grounds. Um, there's, some, there's some other things mentioned in there. But quite frankly, I mean, they're, they're, particularly Scalia's, is fun to read, but it's also really disappointing, in my view, in the substance of addressing the issue of marriage. It's much more about the process whereby uh, this decision was made. Just a little aside, this is kind of fun. In 1915, there were nine members on the Supreme Court, all white men. Um, but their backgrounds were so diverse. That they, one was a, like a retail store owner. They, you know, they'd been in war. They'd been so, so diverse. Um, our Supreme Court now is the least diverse. I mean, okay, there's a Latina woman and, you know, there's, there's these outwardly diverse, but they are all from Yale or Harvard, from the Northeast, uh, uh, Jewish and Catholic, um, all government lawyers who did almost nothing, which is now what you have to do to become a Supreme Court justice, um, <laughs> um, to, out, out of the ordinary. I mean, they're, they're all government lawyers, and, and they're, they're in, and Scalia complains about that in his, in his in his dissent, and he just say one is from California. He said none are from Western states. Said, One's from California, but California doesn't count. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, there you read it. Uh, I'm going to go with the gentleman right here, and then the, right in front. This is a Supreme Court decision that says only a state cannot deny a marriage license to a same-sex couple. The civil rights legislation was actually passed by Congress, and it, that is what um, legislated things like no uh, segregation in public accommodation, for example. Um, now, what happens is the person who then complains about that new legislation has to assert their rights. So the people who were, who were complaining about the uh, civil rights laws with regard to race didn't have a, really a fundamental right to fall back on. Religious people who object have fundamental rights to fall back on. So when that legislation passes, and it's coming, um, and somebody is prosecuted for refusing to take flowers to the same-sex marriage, or provide them in the course of their business, they will have a fundamental right that they can assert, which is different than the racist who doesn't want to serve a black person at the lunch counter. So we aren't there yet. That legislation hasn't been passed yet. It's coming. And when it comes, the religious person who has an objection will have a fundamental right to claim and assert and um, that, that the, like I said, the racist lunch counter vendor didn't have. Does that make sense? Anyway. I don't think that marriage is different. I think that the Bible teaches us any culture's rituals of making a marriage are the way God makes marriages. God mediates his will through culture on many issues. The way God makes a man and woman is not only in the church. It's however a culture makes a man and woman wife. Unless it's illegitimate. 
So a homosexual marriage is illegitimate. So in the eyes of God, they're not married. They're adulterers. They're homosexual behavior. But if a common law marriage comes to our church, they're married. Because our culture. So look, if you'd landed on a desert island and there was no priest there to marry you, you could still get married, is what I'm saying. God works through culture. God works through governments. There's a tremendous diversity in the way cultures make husband and wife. I do not know how the world reacted to the Christian sexual ethic other than that for many centuries in the life of the church they killed Christians for lots of things. But I don't know. And they persecuted them and they lost business and all that stuff. You know, part of what's going on in the letter of 1 Corinthians is that after Paul left Corinth, it got tough to do business as a Christian. Part of the purpose of the letter of 1 Corinthians is to say how to live out your Christian faith when the culture shifted on you and actively began to persecute you. But I don't know any particulars. Mark, do you? Mark Nation, he's a theologian at Eastern Mennonite Seminary. He's written much on this subject. Do you know how the early church was treated when they had the biblical sexual ethic? Well, the only thing I would say is that uh, you know, last summer I read a book, there's a wonderful book by an ancient uh, historian uh, named Kyle Harper. Uh, it's called From Shame to Sin. And he argues that the Christian understanding of sex being wrong outside of marriage was totally unique in the Greco-Roman culture. And so there was much pushback from it. Uh, because it was fairly commonly accepted that men could have sex in addition to being married. And that would typically happen with the concubine or the slave or whatever. Uh, and Christians didn't allow that. And that was a common teaching from the New Testament up through, well, really, for a long time. <laughs> and Constantine, in fact, uh, when he became emperor, uh, institutionalized some of that. I don't know of any account of the Christian church saying, oh, we're really taking hard hits on our sexual ethic. Um, they were just taking hard hits on lots of things, and this was one of them. I'm, I, I, yeah. I think that we should be very careful at thinking that we can dis... I'm uncomfortable with the two kingdoms view. I believe that... Um, I don't believe... Yeah, I resi I'm resistant. So there's a First Things article that says pastors should turn in their kind of credentials for doing marriages with the state and let's, um, let the state do state marriages and let the church do church marriages. But my view earlier is a much thicker view of culture and government than that. I think that um, government needs to speak to marriage. I don't have a diff, you know, I want the government to say murder's wrong. And I resist the government when it says abortion's not murder. But I don't then try to separate out, okay, we're going to have a thing on life and you're going to have a thing on life. I see the same with marriage. So, yeah, I'm not in favor of the First Things article. And I know some of the people, I know the, the guys who wrote it. I, I think it's a, a problematic view. I also think it's impractical. 
How, how are we going to navigate that in our church? Oh, you're living together, but you're married. Where, where did yours occur? And I, I think it's impractical, and I have theological problems with it. Aaron, on the other hand... <laughs> That's a theological question, and I'll leave it to him. Aaron's more Anabaptist than I am. That's, that's closer to an Anabaptist move. So. And it's a similar move to what the gentleman in the back is talking about. And that is to say that, that can, you know, should we move to um, have a, a state marriage and a, and a church marriage and, and call them different things. The fact is we redefine words all the time. You know, and, and, const- and that's what lawyers do and that's what judges do. And you know, cruel and unusual punishment means something quite different today than it did, um, you know, 100 years ago. So when you could, 200 years ago, when you could parade somebody through town tied to the back of an ox cart, which is actually kind of cool. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, we can talk about that later. Um, So, so legal definitions change all the time. And so it's, 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 Nothing new, um, but 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 your proposal sounds similar to what the first things article was talking about. In our in our system, that's the decision that's ultimately going to be left to the courts, um, but it's also going to be weighed in by the executive branch and the legislative branch, and it's going to be ten twenty years before we know what the answer, so to speak, to that question is. Um, you know, we do have freedom of religion, freedom of free exercise of religion, um, but it's been eroded. Um, and so it's, it's, but, you know, I can imagine a, a move by the courts to bolster that. The, the Supreme Court's majority opinion um, tosses a paragraph in that direction. Um, I don't think it's a strong paragraph, but, you know, I choose to take hope in it. Um, but it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a struggle. Are people going to be going to jail over it? I don't think so. Um, are people going to be losing some government benefits over it? Very likely. Um, but, you know, we're, like I said, we've got brothers and sisters in the Middle East getting beheaded. So, question is, is any ideas on how to, how to have courage and practice courage and hospitality to folks you disagree with? And it's what we should be doing all the time. You know, it's the, uh, I forget which speech it was, it's the protester who um, came to the stage when Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking, and he gave him a hug. Um, you know, it's, it's inviting folks into your home that, that you're not necessarily comfortable with and having dinner with them. Um, it's, you know, giving people a hug. I mean, it, that's, that's my, my view of it is that it's, it's, we need to be doing it not only with people we disagree on this issue, but on, on all sorts of issues. Um, and... So we have you all to write down the uh, vocation on your name tag. Um, We don't, we haven't been in this moment before. So for example, pastors, what are we going to do when a couple joins the church that are gay and have children? I don't, I don't know. I really don't know what my pastoral on-the-ground reality. Is it stay in the house, stop having sex? I don't know. 
The reason we had you write your vocations down is all of us are going to face vocation-specific challenges. My job as a theologian, as a pastor, is to sound the kingdom note. And the school teachers figure out how to teach when their curriculum steers them in a certain direction. I can't tell the school teachers how to sort that out. I sound the kingdom note. Love, kindness, mercy. But the school teachers have to get together. And like Aaron said, don't try to figure it out on your own. We have to treat this in the same way our farmers work. Farmers get together and talk about best practices. And as generations go by, a given area of the country learns how to farm the area better, theoretically. We need to do, we've got to do the same thing. I have young school teachers coming out of JMU who say to me, Aubrey, what am I going to do? And I say, I'm the wrong one to ask. I'm not a school teacher. You need to talk to Donna Trainum. You need to talk to Christian school teachers. And we've got to learn how to share accumulated, discerned wisdom. So I think the rubber meets the road how to do this. It's got to be worked out in the context of vocations with pastors sounding the kingdom note fearlessly and church members filled with the spirit of God, loving scripture, going for it. Does the photographer take a picture of the gay wedding? I don't know. I can sound that kingdom note theologically, but that's a business question. And business, Christian businessmen know the nuances of that better than I do. And pastors who think they know business are about as helpful to business as businessmen who want to tell me how to run the church. So what is the position of the Anglican Church of a gay couple with a marriage license married by, you know, legitimately by the government want to join our church? Well, half of that question is easy. If they will not refuse to stop having gay sex, they can't be members of the church. Nobody can join a church who refuses to repent. It doesn't matter the sin. If anybody has an obstinate attitude on any particular sin, and, I mean... We're not talking about a Piccadillo, right? If anybody comes and says, I'm a thief and I'm going to keep stealing, can I join the church? We say no. We wouldn't let anybody, we don't let anybody come to the Lord's table, member or not, who refuses to repent of the sins in their heart. So if a gay couple comes and says, um, we don't think it's wrong and we're not going to stop, and we're not going to try to figure out what to do with our marriage in light of the clear biblical teaching, they can't join the church, and it's not because they're gay. It's because they refute. Orthodox Christianity has always said right worship, right belief, and right behavior. You cannot separate them. That Christian faith is an orientation of the heart that flow, that manifests itself in right behavior, right belief, and right worship. So we don't divide those. Now, if they say we know it was wrong, we stopped having sex. What do we do with our marriage? They would join our church, and then we would figure out what it means. We haven't faced it yet. So, is that clear or is that muddy? Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you all for being here tonight.